Okay, good morning. So, exciting times. I'm here this morning to talk about justice, genocide, and Genesis. When um, Johnny reminded me that I was preaching and what chapters I was preaching on, I said, that looks like a nightmare. Can someone else do it? (laughs) I think that was basically my language to him. Um, But no, I carried on. So I've spent a lot of time studying. Okay, um, these words are not all my own. Uh, This is not some wonderful revelation that I sat on my own in a room and God gave me about these passages. I have gone to people who are far more authoritative about Hebrew and um, ancient Near Eastern cultures than I am, okay, in order to understand these um, chapters. But I have discovered gold in these passages. And I think if we understand them, they are just so comforting. They are encouraging. Um, They are transformative. I think often as Christians, we can feel that pressure that there's the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. And people say to us, how can they be the same? And, you know, Jesus, I don't have a problem with, but that God in the Old Testament, look at what he did. Look Look at his commands. And I think studying these chapters today begins to address that and I'm not going to say I have all the answers but hopefully I'm going to whet your appetite enough that if you're really into this kind of stuff you can go and find out more yourself because there are answers there. I'm not going to spend the next 20 minutes reading all 10 chapters, sorry. We will be dipping in and out today. So can I suggest that you have Exodus um, chapter 21 onwards open in your Bible. Um, I honestly think, I talked to Luke about it, I said, I think if I just read 10 chapters, like, (laughs) it's the Word of God and it's wonderful, but you're going to switch off. You're not really going to hear what I need to say. So, um, yeah, we're going to take it bit by bit. Okay, so the first thing, I just want to set up some things before we look at these chapters, um, things that will help us to understand where they are coming from. Now, I've been assured that this works now. Magic. Okay, there's a really important word that we need to understand um, in this context, and that's the word segula. Okay, and it means treasured possession. And it's a really important concept for us to hold in our minds and our hearts as we look at these rules and regulations. And let's remind ourselves of the purpose of Israel. The purpose of Israel is to represent um, Yahweh to all the other nations because they bear his name. So Johnny talked about this last week in terms of the covenant and the law. So you can go back and listen to that if you're not sure. But they are basically uh, bearers of Yahweh's name. They represent him to all the other nations. I also want us to understand about narrative texts that this is a type of text within the Bible and it's a type of writing uh, from ancient cultures and we need to understand the type of writing it is when we're looking at this, okay? So there are three levels to narrative text. There is the bottom level, which is about the individuals in the story. So that, for example, would be Moses in this story, okay? Or Aaron or any of the others, Miriam. That is the, the bottom level, Then the next level is the middle level. So you've got Israel's history in the world. So what was happening to them and what God was doing through them and what he was using that to show the world. And then finally, you've got the top level, which is about God's creation and how he's redeeming it over time, leading to the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, so there are the three levels that you have within these types of text. We also need to understand that these types of texts are selective and incomplete. 
They are chosen for a reason, but they do not tell us every single detail. Okay, so we're not to read them like they are the full picture. Okay, they record what did happen, not necessarily what should have happened. So this is not God condoning behavior necessarily. Okay, what we have to do is look at the whole of Scripture, all of God's revealed word, to help us to study and understand what is good or not based on all of that. So just because it's there in the Bible and an individual did it doesn't mean God's saying that's how we should be doing things. Okay, we look at the whole of Scripture to understand what he would feel about that particular action by that individual. Okay, sorry, I I just feel these are important for us to understand where we're going to go. Also, as we look through the Bible and we think about kingdom there is, a, pat- uh, there is a, a picture that emerges. So in the Old Testament, you start off with Eden, the world as it's designed to be. That is how God set the pattern of his kingdom. Then it gets ruined. So it's the perished kingdom. Then he calls Abraham and promises him a nation. That's the promised kingdom. And now we are at the point in the story where it's the partial kingdom. So this is not God's fully revealed, wonderful kingdom exactly as he wants it, but it is pointing to the kingdom that is to come. Okay, so he's fulfilling, beginning to fulfill his promises to Abraham, but they only are only part fulfilled. Then there's the prophesied kingdom. We end the Old Testament with the prophets prophesying about um, the, the kingdom to come. Jesus arrived and said the kingdom of God is here. Okay, but it wasn't yet fully revealed, was it? We are now in the proclaimed kingdom. Jesus has come, he has died, he has risen again, and we proclaim it to the world in order that many might be saved, that many might come into the kingdom. And then eventually there will be the perfected kingdom. New heavens, new earth, we live in the glory of God and in his presence forever. Okay, so that is an important pattern. Okay. So... Let's go more specifically now into the story that we have. So we've had um, God bringing the people out of Egypt, takes them to the mountain. Moses goes up the mountain. He's given the commandments. This sets up a covenant. If you do this, then I will do that. And the whole purpose of the covenant is that God wants them to be a, um, a, a light to the other nations, to show the other nations what he is like and how he wants them to live and how different he is, but also that he wants to dwell amongst them again. So by the end of the passages that we're looking at today, there's a sanctuary to be built because God wants to dwell amongst his people. Okay? And here's where we come back to that word of Segula. So you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my Segula. You will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Okay, so what is a segula? It is the personal treasury of a king. And it was also used to describe a covenant partner with a special responsibility to represent the sovereign. Is it not working? Sorry. Okay. No, that's fine. I'm just going to... I don't know what to do with this thing now. There we go. There we go. Thank you. 
So, uh, sorry, the segular is the personal treasury of a king, and it's a covenant partner with special responsibility to represent the sovereign. So we know that God has made this covenant with Israel. If you do this, then I will do that. And they are called to represent the sovereign. Okay, so Israel is God's segular. Okay, they are called to be in covenant with him and to represent him. They have a responsibility to the other nations to represent God. There's also, by the time we get to Malachi, there's a sense of a future day when God will select a new segular for himself. Okay, a new treasured possession made from all nations and peoples. And one, in 1 Peter, he sees the church as its fulfillment. Okay, and we'll look at that um, at the very end. So we are now God's segular. So that's why it's so important that we look at these verses and we look at how God wanted the people of Israel to be and his message for them. So the purpose of God's covenant people was to reveal God's heart and uh, to reveal God and his heart to the nations and to show them a better way and to bring him glory as they did that. The whole point of Exodus was to liberate the people of God for the worship of God, for the worship of Yahweh. And we'll see in a minute, as we look at these laws, they become the basis to treat others well in biblical law. Okay, There's also a real clear thing of, um, so that priestly role is to represent as well, isn't it? Um, and it's supposed to be a kingdom of justice and generosity. I think it's important that we look at the, how the Israelites felt about the law as well, because we can see them as quite harsh, we can see them as uncompromising, we can see them as difficult to keep. But how did they, the people at the time, feel about this law? In Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 to 8, this is Moses speaking after he's received um, the commandments. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way Yahweh is near to us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting out before you today? In ancient Near Eastern cultures, you had to guess what your deity wanted you to do to keep them happy. You had to try and sacrifice things, do certain things at certain times. And if you got it wrong, then there would be punishment. You wouldn't have any crops. People would die. Whatever would happen, tragedy would strike. But it was complete guesswork. This God, he's revealed himself. He said, this is how I want you to live. If you do this, you will receive my blessing. It wasn't guesswork. To them, it was wonderful to know what God required of them. Okay? And Vaughan Roberts says it like this, to be under God's rule is to be under God's blessing. They knew how to please this God. It wasn't just this guesswork. And so we come to this first theme of justice, and we're going to look at slavery and the poor. And this is very uncomfortable for us, isn't it? We're going to look at some verses now to help us understand why actually um, this was radical for its time. Okay, and again, we come back to this idea of this isn't God saying this is his ideal for a society. This is him working within the society at the time to bring about radical change within it. Okay, so can we look at Exodus chapter 21, please? Um, you might want to turn to it or... Okay. 
So the first thing we're going to look at is that um, in the context of slavery, it, God always reminds them that he brought them out of slavery. Okay, So he reminds them they were slaves in Egypt. So it's a good reminder that they are not to treat others the way they were treated. It's very clear that both um, servants and everyone else got a Sabbath rest. So everybody got a day off every week. Didn't matter what your status in society was, everybody got that rest. So they were not working people to death. Okay. If we look at 21 verses 16... It says, anyone who kidnaps another and either sells him or still has him when he is caught must be put to death. So you weren't to kidnap people. So this rules out trafficking. Okay, so slaves weren't there because they'd been trafficked. And it raises the status of everybody to the same. They are all equal human beings in God's sight. They are not commodities to be bought and sold in a trafficking sense. Okay. Verses 20 to 21. And again, this sounds really bizarre, but hopefully when I've explained it a bit more, you'll see the justice in it. If a man beats his male or female slave with a rod and the slave dies as a direct result, he must be punished. But he is not to be punished if the slave gets up after a day or two since the slave is his property. Very uncomfortable reading. Okay, what I want you to notice is that actually there's the death penalty for killing the servant. So again, the servant is of equal value to the master. And that was true for female and male servants. They were all of equal value. That was revolutionary for the time. Okay? Now, the translation that we have, since the slave is his property, is not particularly helpful here. Um, I'm trusting here the translations that I've heard about the Hebrew, where actually the better um, translation is since, the, since it is his silver. Okay, so further on, you see that if, um, if a person was injured, okay, so not a slave, but a normal, not a normal person, but you know, I mean, another person was injured by somebody, then the person who injured them had to pay them compensation because they couldn't work and earn any money. And there was no social security system, so if you couldn't work, you couldn't eat. So if, if I beat somebody and they couldn't work for two days, I would have to compensate them for that. Okay. When somebody became your slave, it was because they were paying off a debt that they could not pay. And we'll look at this in more detail in a moment. If I beat my slave and they can't work for two days, what it is saying is I cannot add to their debt. I cannot say you haven't worked for me for two days, so I'm going to add that on to your debt because you still owe me that money. I've lost that money because I've been so stupid as to beat them so they can't work for me anymore. Revolutionary for the time. So you're not going to want to beat your servant because you're going to lose that money, aren't you? They can't work for you and you're having to cover the cost of the debt that they would have been paying off. Um, if you permanently injured your servant, then they would get released and their debt would be paid off. You, they would be covered. So if they lost a tooth, you had to set them free and they're not going to be paying off the debt that they owe you anymore. 
Okay, that is in um, 26 to 27. So it says, if a man hits a manservant or a maidservant in the eye and destroys it, he must let the servant go. And if he knocks out the tooth of a manservant or maidservant, he must let the servant go free to compensate for the tooth. As now it goes into a lot about bulls goring. Okay, I think that was quite specific to the time. But what the, me- the message is that if a servant is killed accidentally, then it is extremely serious. So if we look at verse 32, if the bull gores a male or female slave, the owner must pay 30 shekels of silver to the master of the slave and the bull must be stoned. So you lose the bull, you lose a lot of money. You're not just going to let your animals recklessly charge around hurting people. Okay, there was a value to the life of the servants and it would be costly to hurt them in any way. Verse 22, it says, um, oh no, hang on, I think that's not quite right. Sorry, I've got the wrong verse there. But basically, I think it's the wrong one. I can't find the right one there, sorry. Okay, I will find that out later. 22, 21. Oh, yeah, 22, 22. Sorry, I'm looking at the wrong chapter. This is the problem when you have too many chapters. Okay. Um, do not ill-treat... I was looking at 21, 22 and panicking. Right, 22, 22. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. You're not going to do it, are you? Who would do that after that warning? You're going to treat them well. You're not going to take advantage of the most vulnerable in society because you know God will be on your case if you do. You are not to charge interest in loans to the needy. 2225, if you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not be like a money lender. Charge him no interest. So if somebody owes you a debt, you cannot be adding interest to it constantly so they can never get out of it. Isn't that something that we hear all the time with people come to this country, you know, we'll pay for you to get to the country, but then, oh, no, you get there and now you owe us this much. And oh, now you're going to have to pay us for food and lodging. So it's being added to all the time. So you can never escape that lifestyle. You can never get out of that debt that you owe. God is forbidding that. There is the original debt and that is that. It's, never, it's not going to get any bigger. It's not going to be added to. Okay? And finally, 23 verse 10. For six years you were to sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what they leave. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. So there was provision for the poor within this culture. Okay, no social security net, but they would have had fields they could go and get food and other things from. So the idea was to try and prevent people from falling into debt in the first place and to provide for the most vulnerable within that society. Okay, so now let's look specifically then at what happens. So suppose you do um, end up getting yourself into debt. Okay, so you've used the provision of the fields Um, Your debt isn't growing, but you cannot pay it off. Now, you can make the choice to voluntarily offer yourself 
as a servant. And then the person would pay off your debt and you would work for them in return. Okay, so that was the context in which you would become a servant if you were a man. Um, Let's read what the Bible says about this. So 21 verses 2 to 6. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife when he comes, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master and only the man shall go free. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl, owl, owl. Um, then he will be his servant for life. Okay, so what is this actually saying? So the term for this type of worker was a male, was called an ebed. Okay, so when we're talking about a servant in this context, we're talking about an ebed. They were a voluntary, oh, no, no, ah, back. Um, they were a voluntary hired worker. So like I say, they couldn't pay off their debt. They go to the person and they say, I will work for you if you pay off my debt for me. Okay. There was a limited term of service. Whether they'd paid off the debt or not, at the end of the sixth year, they would go free. Okay. So they're not going to serve forever. This debt isn't being added to. It's not getting any bigger. They work for six years and the seventh, they go free. At the end of that six years, they are free to leave and go and get married Um, if they want to stay, it's totally voluntary. So they don't have to work for a harsh, cruel, uncaring master. They could leave. But if they love it, if it's working well for them, if they're being provided for, then they are free to stay. But it is their choice at that point. It is not forced. And the whole goal of these laws within this ancient Near Eastern culture was to protect the vulnerable from exploitation by the powerful. It's not saying that slavery is okay, but within this context, everything was set up to make it as as fair as possible, okay? And actually, there are some quotes that we'll come to in a minute that show how revolutionary it was. Now, for the women, okay. (laughs) So, Exodus 21, verses 7 to 11. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as men servants do. If she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because she has broken, he has broken faith with her. If he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. It's awkward to read, isn't it? 21st century. Okay. Hopefully I can make this as clear as possible. So the term for this type of servant or type of person is an amar. Okay. So in ancient Near Eastern cultures, the female marries into the husband's household. Fathers always arranged marriages for their daughters. This was normal practice. So if we remove the slavery or the servant aspect from it, what would normally happen is that somebody would want a wife, the father would agree to the marriage, the daughter would be sent to the house, and they would pay, uh, I can't remember the term, what is it, a 
dowry, that's the term, well done. They would pay a dowry which would go with the woman to provide for her in her new household. And then the man who was getting the wife would pay a bride price for the loss of the daughter. Okay, And also, if anything went wrong in the marriage, they could redeem her, they could buy her back. So she had a get-out clause. Okay. Now imagine you are in debt. You have no way of getting out of that debt. So you can't offer a dowry for your daughter. So she can't get married. But what could happen is that the man would accept the wife in this form as an amar into the household as his wife. But there could be a huge imbalance of power there, couldn't there? Because there's no dowry paid. She is not provided for. There is no money that goes with her as her security. But actually, he still pays um, the bride price. Okay. Um, Women couldn't be kidnapped, so you can't get a situation where this has happened because somebody's just gone and found a wife and dragged her off to the home. This has to be done through the families. If, um, if she doesn't please the master, he must let her be redeemed. So he's got no dowry from her, but her family can still buy her back. Okay, So if he's treating her cruelly or horribly, she can still go back and he's lost He hasn't gained the dowry through that. Okay? Um, He has no right to sell her to foreigners, so he can't sell her on. You imagine if you were a woman, you'd been bought, you had no dowry, your husband doesn't want you anymore, he just lets you go, or he sells you on to foreigners, that's trafficking, that makes you extremely vulnerable. It's not the same in this society to just release a woman like you would a man. They had to have protection. They had to be provided for. So you could let a male servant go after six years. Off you go. You're fine. You couldn't do that with a woman. They would be so vulnerable. They would be exploited. It would be extremely dangerous for them. God allows them to be redeemed back into their family. They can't be sold to foreigners. Okay. If he selects her for his son... He must grant her the rights of a daughter. So she gets all the rights of a daughter in that household. She is not to be treated as lesser than that, even though she hasn't come with a dowry. If he marries another woman, that's not clear whether it's the son or the husband, it doesn't, uh, the father, it doesn't really matter. But he mustn't deprive her of food, clothing, and marital rights. So if another one comes along with a dowry, he can't treat her any differently. And in that culture, providing her with marital rights meant that she had access to the right to become pregnant, which would have provided for her in her future. Okay? If he does not provide her with these three things, food, clothing, and marital rights, she is to go free without any payment of money. Her family do not have to pay to redeem her. So that bride price money is still there to look after her when she gets back home and returns to them. It will provide for her for the rest of her life. Can you see how revolutionary this is? It's to guard against sexual exploitation within that culture. So William Morrow says that laws... um, These laws regulated toward freedom and Sabbath rather than slavery. 
And remember again, this is the partial kingdom. This is not God saying this is exactly how he wants it to be. But within this culture, within this society, he is regulating and putting in to make it as difficult as possible to be unkind or to mistreat the vulnerable. So Esau Macaulay says the Old Testament and later the New Testament I'll say it. The Old Testament and later the New Testament create an imaginative world in which slavery becomes more and more untenable. And William Morrow again says, the biblical slavery laws were calculated to make readers uneasy about the ethics of slave owning. These laws represent an early strategy for raising readers' conscience about the institution of slavery and implicitly calling it into question. Overall, their tactics reflect an ethic of concern for the vulnerable. That's so different to how we can read it first time, isn't it? When we look at those verses and think, what on earth? (laughs) Okay. So I hope that encourages you like it did me. Now we get on to the next section, which is equally exciting, genocide. Okay. (laughs) I got all the best topics today. So a lot of people think that God um, was just about committing genocide in the Old Testament. I want us to read verses 20 to 33. And while we're reading it, I want you to look for the blood. Okay? Right. Sorry, chapter 23, verses 20 to 33. Okay. So this is as the people of God move into this new territory, this promised land that God has given them. See, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. If you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites and Jebusites and I will wipe them out. Do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them that's their gods, and break their sacred stones to pieces. Worship the Lord your God, and his blessing will be on your food and water. I will take away sickness from among you, and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full lifespan. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites out of your way. But I will not drive them out in a single year because the land will become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the desert to the river. I will hand over to you the people who live in the land and you will drive them out before you. Do not make a covenant with them. How can they do that if they're dead? Or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. I was really interested when I read that to find there's not blood, is there? There's a lot of driving out, but there's not go and slaughter them all. There's not leave none alive. There's do not make a covenant with them. Well, you can't make a covenant with dead people. Okay. So God is not commanding genocide. What God is wanting is exclusive worship of himself. 
Um, if you look at what Yahweh says he will do, he says that he will provide um, protection. Oh, sorry, what will Yahweh do? He will oppose Israel's enemies. He will wipe them out, but it's not clear how. Okay, so, yeah, and clearly it's not all of them because they're still there and they mustn't make a covenant with them. Okay? He will throw nations into confusion. He will drive out the nations. He will establish Israel's borders. He will give the people into Israel's hands. And then what are the Israelites supposed to do? They're supposed to not bow down or worship their gods. They're supposed to demolish the gods and their sacred stones. They're supposed to worship Yahweh, drive out the people from before them, and make no covenant with them or their gods and not live the, let them live in the land. Um, so this is not about ethnic cleansing. This is about the exclusive worship of Yahweh. So all the systems, all the social systems would have been around the worship of their gods. So by destroying those areas, um, they were setting up so it was Yahweh to be worshipped. And they're commanded not to intermarry because then they would have started to worship those other gods and they would have started to take on those values. Okay? So it's all about the worship, the exclusive worship of Yahweh. So in this land that he's giving them, he doesn't want other gods being worshipped, just him, because he is setting up this pattern that they are this nation, this kingdom of priests that other nations can look to to see what he is like. Okay. Um, right, and then finally, we're getting on to this section of Genesis. So the last, this is a bit quicker now, guys. We're just kind of going through, but I wanted to spend that time on the slavery one. So if we remind ourselves of the Exodus, they've come out of Egypt. When the Israelites were in Egypt, they were building for Pharaoh's legacy, for his glory and for his worship. They were building these storehouses, they, which was part of the funeral rites. So the Pharaoh would have believed that as long as there was stuff that could be um, got out of there, then he would be remembered and people would continue to do his funeral rites. So then he would continue to be worshipped. Okay, so if he had enough in his storehouses, he could be worshipped forever. Okay, so when the Israelites were in Egypt and they were slaves, they were building this, and this was called miskanot. Okay, that's the um, Hebrew word for it. Now, when they're brought out of Egypt into the promised land and they are building this sanctuary, this um, tabernacle, <laughs> tabernacle, they are building for God's worship and glory. And the word here used is miskan. And I want you to see the similarities between those. So in one place, they were building for Pharaoh's glory and worship. They've been brought out to build for God's worship and glory. The people go from serving Pharaoh to serving Yahweh. And all the golden jewels that are mentioned in the tabernacle came from Egypt. Okay. So when we look at... Um, this tabernacle that they are to build so that God's presence can dwell with them in the way he's always wanted to in this partial kingdom that's a partial revealing of his promise and of the kingdom that is to come. There are so many um, links back to Genesis and the creation echoes. Okay, So when they built the um, tabernacle... If we think back to creation, God creates for six days and then he blesses the seventh day and makes it holy. That's the Sabbath. When um, they have made the tabernacle, 
and it was finished. It was set apart and consecrated for the glory of God. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve had sinned, they were cast out and there were cherubim that guarded it. In the sanctuary, as you moved from the holy place to the really holy place, (laughs) I've forgotten this term, there were curtains guarding it and there were cherubim on there and over the Ark of the Covenant were cherubim. In the Garden of Eden was the Tree of Life. In the tabernacle, there's the lampstand with seven branches and they had flower-like cups. So they were to represent a tree. Golden onyx stones were in the Garden of Eden and the jewels on the high priest and he wore a gold thread on his outfit. There were onyx stones on his shoulders. That pattern of pointing back to the Garden of Eden. Um, There was food that was allowed, food that was not allowed. So the tree of you eat from the tree, any, any tree, but not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, Aaron and the high priest had to eat certain foods and not eat others and eat them in certain ways, not eat other parts of the sacrifice. Um, evening and morning. So obviously it talks a lot in the story of Genesis and creation about um, God did his creating and then it was evening and then it was morning and that was the first day. Within the tabernacle, um, every night they uh, they had to keep oil burning from evening till morning. It's that creation reminder link back again. Talks about I've talked about the food um, in Genesis. It's God's spirit, His knowledge and skill in creation, causing you know Holy Spirit comes and creates. And in the temple or in the tabernacle, it's skilled men that God anoints by His spirit to have the skills to produce this gorgeous area. Um, It was a seven-day process of creating the world and resting. And then in in the tabernacle, you've got the seven-day week and then the Sabbath rest. Okay, so you've got that pattern all the way through. Why is that important? Because Genesis and the Eden was all about God's presence and him dwelling. He dwelt with Adam and Eve. He walked with them. He talked with them. And that got lost. And God wants to restore that again. So um, here we've got the Garden of Eden, the tabernacle with the most holy space. God's presence again becomes accessible to his people. He dwells amongst them. It says here, make a dwelling for me and I will dwell among my people. This is a portable Garden of Eden. Okay, so God is not just a God who delivers. He demands, so he had his covenant, he has his standards. This is how he wants them to live, to be a light to the nations, to show the nations what he is like, but he draws near. He wants to bless his people. The purpose of redemption is always relationship. God is amongst his people once again. So I want us to come back to how does this apply to us today. We are this new segula. We are the treasured possession of God. We are called to be a kingdom of priests, that covenant partner with special represent, responsibility to represent him to the nations. Um, and when we look at Peter, I promised you that we'd look at this. So 1 Peter 2 verses 9 to 10. 
But you, that's us, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, his segula, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's always been about God's presence. It's always about him wanting to dwell with us, with his people. It's always been about us being a light to the nations. And I just want us this morning to come back and worship this wonderful God, to invite his presence. Obviously, he's here, but we want to experience him more and more deeply because we can, because of what Jesus has done. We are now in this proclaimed kingdom. We are proclaiming the kingdom that is to come, the kingdom that he has established. We're not in a partial kingdom anymore, hoping against all hope that we can know this God having to complete all sorts of sacrifices to get near to him. There's been one sacrifice once and for all in Jesus, so we can draw close. This is his plan. He set it up. He will see it through to its final perfect fulfillment. Let's just worship him and invite him amongst us.